Well, let's give our attention to God's word as it's found here in Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I've been thinking a lot the last couple of weeks of a saying, a turn of phrase that I've I've been hearing in the media uh, a couple of times, and it just really grabbed my attention. In an article in Forbes magazine from September 1st of this year, the title of the article was this, What is quiet quitting? And how should leaders respond? The latest buzz phrase, the article said, coming out of social media is the concept of quiet quitting whereby burned out or unsatisfied employees put forth the least amount of effort possible to keep their paychecks. The CBC had an article about it as well, saying, clocking out at 5 p.m. on the dot, only doing your assigned daily tasks, limiting chats with colleagues, and no working overtime. These are the distinctive features of, quote, quiet quitting, a term coined to describe how people are approaching their jobs and professional lives differently to manage burnout. The phrase, which isn't actually intended to lead to a resignation, exploded into the popular lexicon 
the way people speak. Last week, when a TikTok video went viral, I recently learned about this term quiet quitting, when you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. Creator Zaid Khan said in the video, which has since amassed 3.4 million views. It's very interesting, maybe just because it's such a catchy turn of phrase, but more deeply, what it is representing, quiet quitting. I'm sure that COVID, the last couple of years of COVID, uh, the, the overwhelming presence and omnipresence of technology, it seems, in our lives as a perfect storm to contribute to something that could be called quiet quitting. And there are lots of factors to it. It depends if you speak to employers or employees. There are both sides to the issue and to the question. It would be too easy just to generalize what it is and how it should be responded to. But I think it does touch on something that often happens and can be, in some circumstances anyway, a very negative way to think and to live. I like what one writer said, there is a difference between giving 100% with boundaries versus only ever doing the bare minimum to keep your position. And both may be called quiet quitting, but it was that second kind of quiet quitting that piqued my interest, only ever doing the bare minimum to keep your position. This is probably nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. People of past decades would speak about being retired in place. Maybe you've heard that language, which interestingly is an acronym for RIP. Retired in place. A worker mailing it in, as they say. Doing just the bare minimum to keep from getting fired as they wait out retirement benefits. Now why bring something like quiet quitting, something we see out in our culture, to our attention this afternoon. Why consider something like this? Well, we don't live in a bubble. We live in our culture. As Christians, we're exposed to many of the same situations and pressures as the next person to us in the world. And so we should be aware of these things for several reasons. We should understand the times. The men of Issachar were commended because they understood the times. We want to minister to people. For a doctor to minister to someone, he needs to know what's going on. He needs to ask questions. He needs to diagnose. He needs to know what really is the uh, problem before he can start to give the prescription, the remedy. How can we minister to people more effectively? We need to know what's going on around us. Also, it will be a help as we hope to encourage one another. Because as I I think we'll see, this sort of thing isn't just a phenomenon out there. It's probably happening in here as well, in different ways. How can we minister to each other, encourage each other, We need to know what's happening, what's going on, and the kinds of things we face in life. The phenomenon of quiet quitting, when it means just hanging in but dropping out 
at the same time is a real temptation, not just in our jobs, but in the Christian life as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a very helpful book called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he speaks about two dangerous responses to the pressures we face in life. And this is what he said. First, we may simply give up. The problems are too big. The difficulty has lasted too long. Delight has turned to duty, so we just quit. But then Lloyd-Jones says there is a second response, which he calls resignation. The joy we once had is now gone, but we refuse to quit and will commit to keep going on, even though the passion is gone. I will go on, though I go on feeling rather hopeless about it all, just shuffling down the road, not walking with hope as I once did, but just keeping on as best I can. When I heard about quiet quitting in our society, I couldn't help but think, about the possibility of quiet quitting in the Christian life and in my own life. Because, friends, if we're honest, I think not a few of us may have felt this temptation, if not even a few steps further down the road than just temptation. In the Bible, the temptations of discouragement can make us think, if not actually say, why bother? What's the use? What difference does it make? It's useless. We're still going to show up to worship. We're still going to go to prayer meeting. We're still going to have family worship. We're still going to meet with people. But deep down, somewhere, the nagging suspicion, it's useless. It's really futile. Why bother? There are lots of reasons why we could come to that. We can think that sometimes when we look at the lives of unbelievers who seemingly have it quite good. This is what Psalm 73 deals like, deals with. This is what the wicked are like, it says in verse 12, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth, surely in vain. That means for nothing. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. What benefit really is there in the Christian life when people who don't have a a thought or a care for the things of God or Christ are getting along quite well? Thank you. And the temptations can come like they did to the psalmist in Psalm 73. Why bother? 
We can, we can face this temptation perhaps when we think other Christians aren't stepping up. And the, the parallel thought there often is, like I have. I've been really pouring out. I've been giving and giving and giving. Where's everybody else? We get to the point where we'll still do the bare minimum, but inside we've given up. Is that just a fantasy kind, just a, you know, an imaginary sort of thing? Isn't that what Elijah felt? I alone am left. Here I've done all this for the Lord, and I alone am left. No one else. Why bother? We see it in Scripture. We see it in church history. John Calvin, in his last letter that he wrote to the ministers of Geneva, wrote this, I have had many infirmities which you have been obliged to bear with. And what is more, all I have done has been worth nothing. The ungodly will greedily seize upon this word, but I say it again, that all I have done has been worth nothing, and that I am a miserable creature. You know how often you think of John Calvin that way, but that's what he wrote. David Livingston, the famous missionary in Africa, at one point in his ministry said, all that I have done has only opened up the African slave trade. The mission societies bear no fruit after 23 years of labor. All work seems to be in vain. I have labored in vain. All for nothing. How easily we can be brought to think that. We look around. We look sometimes with our, within our own hearts and our Christian lives after sometimes decades of being a Christian and our conclusion written in red across the top of our thinking in our lives is a big red F. Failure. So why bother? Not to the point, again, of not showing up and not doing the bare minimum, but the heart is gone. We can think why bother and not outright quit, but go along outwardly or dutifully, having lost our first love passion somewhere along the way. And as we think about this, I think that a very remarkable, even perhaps shocking part of the Bible that relates to this is here in our passage this afternoon in Isaiah 49. We know as we come to Isaiah 49 what's true of all of the Old Testament. Jesus said, it all speaks of me. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Some passages speak more directly and more clearly of Jesus, and that's certainly true of this part of the book of Isaiah, especially in the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. These chapters contain what have been called the servant songs, four servant songs, distinct parts of these chapters, which describe the preeminent servant of the Lord which, of course, is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are things that are especially prominent in these servant songs. The first is the suffering of the servant. He is the suffering servant. But then there is also in these songs, coming out of his suffering, the glorious outcome and fruit of his work. We see both those things in these servant songs. And so in these words, we have a prophetic window into the life and ministry of Jesus, the servant of the Lord par excellence. Now we remember, of course, what the Bible tells us, what the New Testament tells us about Jesus. He was made like us in every way, a full and complete human nature, yet without sin. No sin ever in the thinking, speaking, or doing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the lamb without spot or blemish. The New Testament says that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so as he comes... As Emmanuel, God with us, and takes our nature and lives and walks on this earth, he's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That, that line is never crossed ever in the life of the Lord from temptation to sin. And he lived this life first as our righteousness that there could be a perfect righteousness to be offered to God which covers the people of God in our justification, that there might be that suffering to wash away the guilt of our sin. He didn't offer sin first for himself like the high priests of old. He had no sin that needed to be sacrificed for, so he was qualified to be the Lamb of God. He did it for us in our righteousness He also lived this life to become our sympathetic high priest then. The high priest who knows what it's like to live in this world. And thirdly, his life was then lived as an example to us. Not in everything, but in many ways that we are to walk as Jesus walked. We need to remember all that. And yet we come to Isaiah 49, verse 4. And I think if, if maybe you've never read this before or you haven't read it for a while or you just never remembered it, I don't think we would have ever thought, many of us, that Jesus would have been tempted in this way if it were not here in Scripture. I really think that that other temptations we could see, but surely not this temptation. 
Surely Jesus was above this somehow and never, never experienced these sorts of things. But Alec Matir in his commentary on Isaiah says, Isaiah foresaw a servant with a real human nature, tested like we are, and proving himself to be the author and perfecter of the way of faith, a real personal faith that can still say, my God, when nothing any longer seems worthwhile. Now, why does he say that? Listen to Isaiah 49, verse 4. But I said, this is the suffering servant. The first servant song in Isaiah 42 is biographical. It describes the servant. But some have said here in Isaiah 49, it is autobiographical. It is the servant himself speaking. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Have you ever read that before? Have you ever really thought about it? What it was for this to be prophesied of the Lord Jesus in his life and his ministry? Mutir again says, the servant is despondent because although no effort has been spared, I have labored, I've spent my strength, nothing has been achieved. Look at the language. What does he say? To no purpose. In vain. That's the same word that's used in Genesis 1-2 about the earth being empty and void. And for nothing. That's the word that appears over and over in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. This is a temptation that Jesus faced. Is it hard to believe? He came to his own, and his own received him not. Luke 19, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. One commentator says, instead of penitence in the city, there had been hardening. Instead of conversion, apostasy. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, said Jesus in Matthew 23, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hen, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. We know what Jesus said. Often we're not given more than that. We, we don't know what tone of voice Jesus used when he said some things, but in light of Isaiah 49, 4, I've been thinking again about what Jesus says in John 6, 67, when he begins to speak of himself and preach about himself, and the crowds leave. And then in verse 67, we read, then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? I wonder how he said that. Do you also want to go away? I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. We see what Jesus faced 
here, even in Isaiah 49, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation? Israel's true king, redeemer. Surely they will listen to my son. Crucify him. I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. This is a real temptation in the life of our Lord. Should we be surprised then that it comes at times as a temptation to us? In our Christian lives, wrestling against sin, day after day after day, and maybe coming to the point where we just say, why bother? Ministering in our homes and in our families with our children as they grow and then even as they're maybe outside of our home but still are our children. And we think about all the things that were done and all the labor that we poured out into their lives. And we might have the temptation, I've labored for nothing. Or we work in the church or the church in our country. And we witness and we we speak and we do this and we do that. And most people just keep driving by. This can be a real temptation to think that it's all meaningless, useless, and futile. We might go on. We might start again this September. We might keep doing what we're doing, but deep down there is this temptation. But look at the middle of verse 4. I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing yet. There's the hinge. There's the turning point. Yet. What is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. The temptation to meaninglessness and futility Motier says, this is only the first thought, not the last. To remain there is to remain despondent, to sink into depression. But yet is a conjunction, a joining word, calling attention to a contrary truth, a contrast to what might have been imagined. It is used to convey the thought that it is for the Lord and not me to decide what is due to me and for him, not me, to apportion reward for labor. Even here in Isaiah 49, which presents to us this startling uh, temptation in the life of our Lord, the answer to the temptation is there in the same passage. To meditate on, to think upon, to embrace the promise of God, God's promise Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant in whom I will display my splendor. God will be glorified. He's promised it. Verse 6, 
It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. I will, says God, the promise of God in the face of temptation. The character of God in the face of temptation. Verse 7, because of the Lord who is faithful, as we heard this morning, he is faithful. The righteousness of God, verse 4, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. God is not unrighteous. And God's enabling, verse 5, my God has been my strength. In his full and complete humanity, the, the Redeemer says, my God has been my strength. Christ never gave in to the temptation to despair. He entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. First, as the Lord our righteousness, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He stood He didn't quit. He gave everything as our Savior. And what was the outcome? Isaiah 53 in the next servant song, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And, you know, by the gift of saving faith, that is us. We are those distant lands. We are part of the Gentiles that have been called in, most of us. We are included in the reward that Jesus was tempted to doubt. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Jesus did that as our righteousness and our Savior, but also as our example. When we feel like quiet quitting, maybe when we've been quiet quitting, read Isaiah 49 again. Read verse 4. See your Lord as your sympathetic high priest who knows and who is tempted as we are yet without sin to help those who are being tempted. Think about God's promises. Think about God's character. Think about God's righteousness. Think about God's enabling strength. And as we heard this morning, then let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. God is not unjust, it says in Hebrews 6.10. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Let us not become weary in doing good, Galatians 6.9, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Psalm 126.5, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Live by faith. Live by faith. 
We can be tempted to say, I've labored to no purpose, I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. But do we know that absolutely? Do we know that that's true absolutely? No, we cannot see deeply enough or far enough to make a conclusion like that. Today we hear about scientists and engineers developing things like ground-penetrating radar, where they can see underground. But spiritually, what is true is what someone said many years ago, we see not beneath the soil. We don't see beneath the soil. There are things going on in people's hearts and lives that we just don't see. And we don't know. So we can't say for nothing. The James Webb Space Telescope can see far, so far. But as human beings, we cannot see into eternity. We cannot see what the Lord will accomplish tomorrow or next year or in the next generation. And so with the servant, we should say our work is with the Lord. It's his work. Who knows what fruit will come in the final harvest? Who knows how many times and ways we will be surprised in heaven? When people will come to us in different ways and tell their story, And we, maybe in those situations, would have said, I've labored to no purpose. I spent my strength in vain and for nothing. And people will say, for nothing? I'm here. I'm here. In all the different ways that God uses the things that we do, the things that we say in life. I'm speaking to someone this morning. We just say something to someone. But the next person says something. And the next person says, it's all part of the work of God as he's working out his plan. And we can't see far enough. And yet we're tempted to say it's for nothing. Who knows what fruit will come in the final harvest? We need to remember our Savior, Jesus, the suffering servant, the once suffering servant, who is now raised triumphantly and gloriously. Without Christ and apart from Christ, ultimately all human achievement will go the way of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards watch in vain. But as we think of Isaiah 49.4. And remember Christ now raised and seated at God's right hand and building his church for us and for our salvation and knowing according to the word of God that in the end he will be satisfied. Then listen to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul draws out in 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.